Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Stuart Stevens was my opposite number in the Mitt Romney campaign when I was uh, the chief strategist for President Obama's re-election in 2012. Now he's a fellow at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, uh, the author of five books, including The Last Season, A Father, a Son, and a Lifetime of College Football, a really interesting and and good read about his uh, growing up in uh, segregationist Mississippi and uh, the link between he and his father around uh, the University of Mississippi football team. Uh, Highly recommended. I sat down with Stuart the other day to talk about Donald Trump, the Republican Party, and uh, a lot of the craziness that is dominating our news today. Stuart Stevens, four years ago, you and I were plotting and scheming against each other, not personally, but uh, we were both deep into the presidential election. Do you have withdrawal, regrets? Are you sorry you're not in the middle of this food fight? Well, I'm sorry we lost, uh, but I'm... Not sorry, I'm not involved in this race. I, I wish Mitt Romney was running again. I think he'd be winning. Um, Why didn't he? I mean, it was just a personal decision. Um, you know, I was talking to him a lot in January. Um, you know, usually with with Mitt Romney, his on the record and off the record are the same. Uh, there's usually not a hidden agenda. Um, I always get asked, you know, what's Mitt really saying? And usually it's pretty close to what he's saying uh, publicly. Um, I I just don't think it felt right to him. Um, Think it was a mistake? Not if it didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. I I, I think that, uh, you know, my my advice, such as it was at the time, was it's impossible in January of 2015 to calculate the politics Uh, for the primary or the general. I think that has been thoroughly proven. Yeah. No one would have predicted where we we, we are where we are today. I said, look, you could win, you could come in last. So I don't think you can make a political decision. I think you have to make a personal decision. And, um, you know, the truth is what it always is in politics, as, as you know, most people lose when they run for president. It's like the Super Bowl. It's really hard to get there and, some reason to believe that 50% of the teams to get there lose. 
Um, I think it just didn't, in the end of the day, didn't feel right to he, to he and Ann. But, but I think it, were he running, he would be winning the nomination. Interesting. Well, I'm sure that there are a lot of so-called establishment Republicans who uh, would relish that scenario right now. I want to leave this. Let's. We're going to come back to the 2016 sure. race because there's a lot to talk about there, including Donald Trump's little Valentine to you in the last few days. But uh, uh, you, for whatever reason, and we'll get to it, you've managed to get his attention because normally he just looks the other way when people say unkind things about him but you just you know that you're you're one of those rare people who have come under attack from donald trump but we'll we'll get back to that later but i really want to talk a little bit about uh about your life uh and how you came to do what you you're doing um i mean we we have somewhat parallel lives we're about the same age we both uh um uh, we've been political consultants. We've been writers. Uh, you're what they call an extreme sports enthusiast, uh, which means you go and do crazy, crazy-ass things. And uh, I am an extreme sports fan, which means I sit in my study and watch a lot of games. <laughs> so it's sort of similar. It's it, You probably are fitter than I am. But um, tell me about – you're from Mississippi. I'm right. from New York City. It's different. Tell me about what life was like uh, growing up and how you – and you grew up in an interesting time in the South right. in the 60s. Uh, what, what, what was it like in ja- – was it in Jackson, in Jackson, Jackson Mississippi? Jackson, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I really grew up uh, when I came of age really at the Mississippi burning years. Um, and a lot of this book I just wrote the last season was um, about growing up in Mississippi – and it's really, I think, what drew me to politics because politics then was so dramatic. Um, you know, my family was funny co- because I feel the same way. I was watching this whole thing yeah. as a kid in New York, and I felt the same way. Yeah. It was a very vivid time. But you, I was reading about what was going on in the South. You were living. It. Yeah, it, it. You know, my family was close to a guy named William Winter, um, who. Uh, was a Democrat, the really only Democrats then. Um, and he kept uh, running for office and losing. Uh, and I would work in all his races as a kid, you know, walking precincts and everything. Finally, I quit working. In but his- we should say uh, he was uh, he was not a traditional Southern Democrat. No, he, he was a new Democrat in the South who he- was for integration and against the— Well, he, you know, then everything was about race. And he, the, the phrase that people would use was, he was good on race. And if you still talk to people, uh, that's what they'll say. You know, William was good on race. And what is that, First of all, what does that mean? And what did it mean to you? It means that he wasn't, a, he wasn't a segregationist. And even more than that, it meant that he could, was willing to lose without going to the dark side. And... There's a wonderful film uh, that has just been made in the last year about William Winter that focuses on his um, time as governor. It was only four years because then governors couldn't uh, run for re-election in Mississippi. Um, it focuses on him getting uh, education bills passed in Mississippi. Um, but it, it really is a story of William Winter. It's called uh, The Hardest Job. 
Um, and why, it, why were you why were you personally attracted to him? And t- talk well, we, us about your family and yeah, the values that yeah, you, you know. We we I grew up in um, lawyers and judges and ministers, um, and and those Presbyterian ministers and Methodist ministers uh, were all very much involved in uh, the civil rights side from that perspective. My grandmother. Um, on my father's side was one of the co-founders of, it's just unbelievable to think that such an organization needed to exist, but was the woman's, uh, anti-lynching society. Hmm. Um, and I, I, my uncle, uh, Francis, uh, who died a couple of years ago, um, became a full-time civil rights lawyer, um, and you know in in jackson it you know I, I can remember vividly the night that that Megar Evers was shot um Sheila Evers was one of my close friends in high school his uh uh his niece um and you know it uh, everything Jackson was a very small town um and of course the Ole miss riots in sixty two uh were, were vivid. The first scene in my book uh, is uh, the Ole Miss-Kentucky game in 1962, which was a Saturday night before the Sunday riots at uh, the University of Mississippi where uh, crazy Governor Ross Barnett came out at halftime and gave this speech, which basically called for insurrection against the federal government before the integration of Ole Miss uh, with Ross Barnett. Mm-hmm. I mean, with uh, James, James Meredith. Meredith yes. um, one of the more extraordinary moments. Remember, my dad, uh, we left at halftime. You know, I never really understood why. Um, and it... it was Your just, dad just said, let's go. Let's go. We left. Because um, he was so offended by... Yeah, yeah. And I can remember vividly, it's uh, another scene in my book, um, when William Winter was running for governor in 1967. Um, And this is in that documentary. There were many death threats against him. and um, Because he was a white white man who rejected segregation. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't have any security in those days. And um, there was, it was always difficult then to know who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side. And if you go back to the killing of Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, the three civil rights yeah. Philadelphia, Mississippi. in Philadelphia, Mississippi, you know, it appears that they were turned over to the Klan by sheriff. Um, so it's always who could you trust in law enforcement? Um, and uh, Winter had a group of uh, f- law enforcement types and former law enforcement types. My father had been in the FBI who tried to, tried to help with security. And I can just remember vividly being in this high school locker room uh, down in uh, South Mississippi on a Friday night for a football game, and there had been this very specific threat that he would be shot if he came out and spoke. And they were urging him not to go out. It was this foggy night, and he insisted on doing it. Um, and Did you know about that in advance? I sort of knew, I sort of understood what was going on. 
So did you have a sense didn't. of foreboding when he came yes. out to speak? Uh, yeah, and, and his wife was crying. Wow. And he insisted that he would do it. He's a very tough guy, William Winter. Uh, not a big guy, but he he very tough guy. And, you know, uh, finally uh, they realized they couldn't talk him out of it, and one of them went out to the car and came back with this kind of bulky bulletproof vest, and he put it on under his jacket. And they went out to the car, and they came back with these long rifles, and they were putting them under their coats. And my father, uh, who'd had a, a long war, World War II, um, always hated guns, and uh, yeah, he, he got a gun, and you know, they walked out, and it was powerful. And uh, you know, as it turns out, there, there were very specific threats against Winter that night, and probably having uh, those guys there may have saved his life. So it was very dramatic, dramatic times. Um, that's when Byron Delabequith uh, De was tried three times for the, for the assassination of Medgar Evers. Uh, hung jury each time. Now in prison. Uh, was Did he was pass later, away? later later convicted uh, and, and died in prison. Died in prison, yeah. Um, but, you know, they tried him three times, and the uh, DA... He effectively lived his whole life without going well, to prison until the end of his life. M- more than that, based on the publicity that he got, he ran for lieutenant governor. And his slogan was, I kid you not, I still have one of his posters, a straight shooter. Yeah. Came in fourth. And this is not that long ago. Yeah. Um, The DA who tried to, who did prosecute him, really did try to convict him. And uh, he lived down the street from us. His son was my age. He's now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in Mississippi. Was almost driven mad by his inability to get a conviction. And he later ran for governor himself and was elected governor, I think, in sort of a paroxysm of guilt by Mississippians, uh, Bill Waller. Um, but it's, it's amazing to think how far uh, Mississippi has come. Um, it's one of the themes of my book is the, the role sports has played in helping Mississippi develop and forcing it. I think it's very much like rugby in South Africa. And not that, you know... We're home by any means, by any means. Well, but yeah, let me ask you about that. It's not that, that long because, ago. Um, you also lived, as I did through this era when we were kids, where the Lyndon Johnson passed the Civil Rights Act and yeah. the Voting Rights Act. And almost, uh, and he said when he signed it, we just gave away the South. And, uh, you know, Richard Nixon seized on this. And um, the South very much shifted from being a solid mm-hmm. uh, sort of uh, reliable vote for the Democratic Party into a Republican bastion. He said, hey, you would say that the South is the, is the, is the base right. of the Republican Party, and race had a lot to do with that. Um, and I ask you this not to be provocative, but you're a Republican. Uh, you lived through that. Um, so reconcile that for me. Well, you know... Um when I came up... Maybe I asked to be provocative. I don't know. No, you know, when I came up, the Democrats were, were uh, the segregationists, the Eastland and Stennis. Mm-hmm. And I was really formed by that. And to be a Democrat was sort of to join that machine. Mm-hmm. And unless you wanted to be like a county clerk in Itawamba County, 
there was no joy in being for the home team. That wasn't your aspiration. Yes. And um, we're all sort of formed by that early experience. And so it was guys like Ted Cochran who came along to beat the Eastland machine, which they thought never could be done. Um, And, you know, Charles Evers endorsed Ted Cochran. And Medgar's brother. Medgar, Medgar's brother. Um, and so that's how I was formed. And, um, you know, I think once you sort of start that path, it's where you end up. Um, you know, I'm, I, I'm very um, critical of both parties. Um, Makes to, you the average American, to, probably. To, to, you know, probably to a fault, which gets to why I'm in this fight with Donald Trump. Um, but um, I, I think uh, there's plenty of fault to go around. And uh, it would be Mississippi's an example of a place uh, of great imperfections that having. At one time, not too long ago, it had more African-American elected officials than any other state, not per capita. Um, And it's obviously changed a lot. Um, But, you know, there's still a dark side there. And uh, we saw some of it in this this Stag Cochran primary. Yeah, he had a very vigorous primary with a Tea Party candidate. And... Was there, my recollection is that that was sort of suffused in, in 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 the background was was sort of race and it was very complicated. Uh, you know, I went I worked for Thad, and it was one of those things um, because I had worked in Thad's earlier races. Uh, I went down. How many? How long has he been in the U.S. Senate now? That uh, Thad was elected in um, seventy eight. Yeah, so a long time, which was probably part of the problem um it it was not a great year to be running and you know last year was not a great year to be running um as a long-time incumbent for anybody yeah but but beyond that i mean you know he was really he was really depicted i mean his record is quite conservative in the senate he was depicted as kind of a leftist uh, by right. the the opposition, and I mean, it, this is sort of the battle that's going on within the Republican Party right now. It seems like your party is in a kind of civil war. Yeah, you know, there's sort of two uh, narratives to use a word I hate, but you're a writer, it. man. Narratives isn't that what you do? Well, but it's just the way it's used now. But people get it, so I use it. <laughs> there's sort of two narratives about the Republican Party. One is that it's all, uh, you know. Homogeneous, all sort of boring white men, and everybody thinks alike. The other is that the party's so uh, uh, diverse that it's a civil war and no one can get along. Or uh, there's a third interpretation, which is it's all a bunch of white guys, but they're in a civil war. Yeah, I, I think um, I think they're all true. <laughs> and it's like I think at any given moment, uh, it's it, it's all true. Um, you know, I, I tend to think conflict is good. I'm drawing the conflict because I think when people are arguing, that's a good thing. I think when people start to agree too much, it's a bad thing. Um, 
I, I listen. I, I think the party uh, has gotten, uh, in many ways, bigger. If you just look around the country, you know, if what thirty-one governorships or something like that, you're going to have a lot of different visions of what that country ought to be, of what that governorships ought to be. There's a lot of arguing. I think that's good. Um, you know, a lot of it I don't agree with. I mean, if you look at the McDaniel Cochran, I mean, that was a that was a flat out street fight. Um, I mean, I went down there for three days to help out, and I stayed for seven weeks. Um, and I mean, we fought it out in this. I mean, it was it, yeah, it was a brawl. It, it was it was a brawl. I mean, it was a flat out rumble, and. Um, it was ugly in a way that we hadn't had ugly in Mississippi in a long, long time, and I didn't think we would be. Um, but, you know, the good guy won. Um, Barely. I mean, it was yeah. a runoff. And- it was a runoff, and, and he did what people thought couldn't be done, which came back in a runoff, and more people voted in the runoff than in the, in the previous, which we didn't think would ever happen. Well, do me a favor. Describe yeah. to me as someone who's— I, I confess, not a Republican. Uh, describe to me uh, what the camps are in the Republican Party. How would you describe the camps in the Republican Party right now? Well, I, I think, uh, to me, the two biggest splits are uh, there's this, I would call, a Ted Cruz, Donald Trump category that believes um, that the reason... Mitt Romney lost is because he didn't get enough conservative white votes and that you can just drill down more in there and win. Um, and then there's another. He uh, got he, he he did better among white voters than anybody probably since Reagan. Right. Well, we can get to that theory yeah. and the validity of it. And the other is that the, the party needs to uh, expand um, and that it needs to be. Uh, Doesn't it? I mean, the country is becoming more diverse all the time. Well, let's just sort of look at the at each of these real quick. Okay. okay. So Romney got more a higher percentage of white votes than Ronald Reagan did in 1980. So to me, it's sort of like you've got a baseball team. You got one guy who's hitting 450 and a bunch of 125 hitters. You want to raise the average? Could you get the 450 hitter to 600? Yeah, you could in theory, but maybe it'd be better to get the 125 guys to hit their body weight. That'd be like more logical. Um, I don't think you're going to have a candidate that is going to. I was. I almost slid into a Chris Christie joke, and I didn't. Yes. So go ahead. Okay. Good. Uh, Though he would be an all-star. Go ahead. Yes. Uh, I think uh, on all sorts of levels. One, I think as a party. Um, you have a moral obligation to represent the whole country and that uh, forgetting any other electoral needs, you need to represent the whole country. Um, So uh, we need to uh, do much better with African-Americans, which has been the great conundrum of the Republican Party for a long time, and we need to do better with Hispanics. forget Forget the electoral element, just as the Democratic Party uh can't become a minority white party. It needs to. It needs to do better. It needs to. It needs to pass up. The, the Democratic Party can't become a party of the coast um, that only wins every four years. Uh, that doesn't uh, have any governors in the middle of the country. That's bad for the political dialogue of the country. Um, I mean, part of the reason that 
that is true is that most of the governors are elected in midterm elections when the turnout is radically different which than is it bad is. yeah i agree with you yeah which is bad to have that difference in turnout um it's bad to have people that disengaged you know you should have more of a of uh a leveling and when you do you have better governance and you look at the states that that have less of a drop-off they tend to be better governed states so you think we should do more to encourage people to vote make I, it easier for them to vote i think we should there's some folks in your party don't feel that way I, I think we should I, – I, I'm sort of a radical on this. I'm open to uh, crazy stuff they do like you know, mandatory voting and you get fined. Um, and where, where I break down is when, though, when we say, oh, Ohio reduced uh, early voting and this is a sign that they're doing voter suppression. And yet New York doesn't have any early voting. So if we really believe that the test of voter suppression is early voting, the logical conclusion is we will focus first on states that have no early voting. That would be the states like New York that have no early voting. So I get sort of my little spider, moral spider. We should have early voting everywhere. So, I agree yeah. with that. And if you really believe that, and say, and you're a senator from New York like Hillary Clinton, your own state doesn't have early voting. So let's fix that first before we start worrying about a state that, you know, maybe doesn't have enough early voting. Zero is the ultimate. So um, it starts to get where the moral outrage uh, becomes a bit transparently political. And Do you think there are states where that. there's been an effort to, I don't want to get deeply into this, but where there are, uh, you coming from the South and the experience that you've had, are there states where there's been an effort to try and discourage minority participation in elections? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't see that. I'll be honest. You look at Mississippi, we, we had uh, voter ID for the first time. And uh, if you look at the Cochrane race, the complaint was that uh, African-Americans were voting at a, a higher level than they ever had before. Well, you guys actively solicited African-American votes, didn't you? Well, I don't know how to answer that. We tried to get people to vote for us. You know, we don't have party registration in Mississippi. Mm -hmm. So um, we asked— I, mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. I'm no, not we asked to... people to vote for us. And that whole conundrum, what was so— but That was what was striking about it. It was like that was—you were— <clears throat> reaching out to the minority community and that was being held up in that election by the other side as a, uh, as a very, very pernicious and negative thing. Well, it was, it was even worse than that because what they were saying is you're trying to get Democrats to vote for you. So when you don't have party registration and you're saying you're trying to get Democrats, what are you really talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, and in that race, um, you had these uh, predominantly African-American precincts. Say, so take South Jackson. Um, the previous election had been six years earlier. Uh, if you go back to the general election, uh, uh, when Barack Obama was on the ballot, you know, you'd go in these precincts in Jackson and you'd, you'd look at them and you'd have, say, you know, Box 21. I know these precincts like the back of my hand. Uh, Mega Ebersole precinct. Uh, uh, Barack Obama would get like 1,400 votes. Dad Cochran was on the ballot. He would get like, you know, uh, 200 votes. So in the primary, in the runoff, he would get maybe 82 votes. So it was not 
some miracle that these people were voting for Thad Cochran. It was not some gimmick. Most of them were repeat customers. And since the whole message that was being delivered was that we were going to pick our senator in this election, the idea here— Because you know, no Democrat was going to get elected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The idea that 50 years after Freedom Summer, these people wanted to participate in the selection of the United States I'm senator. Not, I know. It I'm was not, so— Listen, I, man, I'm not— I, uh, I know, but, I mean, the whole idea was— it But was, it does say something, though, that that was—I mean, that that was considered— uh, sort of heresy that you would go and see. I was out there screaming. Votes. I was out there screaming from the battlements that to say that to go out to try to get uh, people to vote for you and that to call these people uh, to say that you were trying to get Democrat votes and that was illegal or something where we don't have voter registration was racist. I was screaming that from the battlements. Uh, it's, 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 we all know what we're talking about and it's wrong. Let me, um, uh, before we get into the, uh, well, well, I'll ask you about it now, and then we can circle back to 2012. Uh, So your buddy Donald Trump uh, tweeted last night, Stuart Stevens is a (laughs) dumb guy who who fails at virtually everything he touches, Romney campaign, his book, etc. Why does Anderson Cooper put him on? So you definitely got his attention. what did you do to so disturb the Donald? I I uh, spent like five minutes on Anderson Cooper um, predicting, uh, not for the first time, that he was going to lose Iowa, which he is, and that he won't be the nominee, which he's not going to be. Um, I I said, but I you know I said months ago I, I was I, I said he was going to have a great summer as people got serious his his vote would diminish party would coalesce around someone else you know it's january and he's still doing pretty well and he's doing pretty well honestly Stuart, with a very nativist strident message first of all why and secondly what is what gives you confidence that he that that he's not going to ultimately prevail it's clearly wishful thinking uh <laughs> um i um You know, I think whenever we, uh, be it politics, sports, or finance, whenever we find ourselves saying, well, this time it's different, it's not, turns out not to be different. You know, when it's 1999 and we say the NASDAQ's going to go to, you know, 10,000, pets.com's going to take over the world, well, it doesn't. Um, You know, housing prices are never going to go down. Well, they do. Um, Donald Trump um, is at his essence an absurd human being. Um, and I think it, it's always easier to predict the outcome of these things and the timing of these things. Um, it's like looking at a sports team that fundamentally isn't very good. And maybe they can have a run, but you know they're going to get beaten by a better team ultimately in a long season. Um, I think that he has a certain appeal. He's a candidate of anger. Um, there, it's, we have a, a country that is 23% of the people think we're going in the right direction. Uh, there has been, uh, we're the period of the greatest inequality in American history. The last seven years have been fantastic years if you owned assets. The stock market is booming. Uh, people who were doing well are doing better. The rich have gotten richer, the poor have gotten poorer. And uh, those most people feel 
that there are these large, powerful forces in their lives that uh, have influence on them, and they don't know what to do about it. And we've had other periods like this in American life, and it led to uh, great religious movements or great populist movements. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Um, I think that he uh, is very manipulative. I think that he believes in absolutely nothing. He's someone who's changed parties five times, which is you know, more than he's changed wives. And uh, he's able to manipulate that. Um, and there's certain uh, appeal to that. Um, but I think that uh, he's leading. He's, he's been leading now for he's, he's, five months. You know, I, I have to remember. I mean, in, with the two thousand immigrant, you know, immigrant trade, obviously a big, yeah. a big uh, point for him. The refugee barring Muslims from the country and so on. I mean, he's found a market for all of that, and it's a fairly selling, large market. He's selling hate, and um, there's always a certain market for hate. And uh, I think ultimately uh, it's a loser's market. So tell me something. Why why have uh, why has there not been a a serious campaign against him? Why have all the candidates navigated around him? Your your firm. I know you're walled off from it, but your firm represents Governor Christie. Uh, Donald Trump says thousands of people in New Jersey were cheering. Muslims in New Jersey were cheering when the towers went down. It was really, he maligned the state of New Jersey and the people who lived there. Why didn't Chris Christie say, that's a load of crap? I think um, a couple of things. One, I think each of these candidates, it's been a very crowded field. And each of the candidates has struggled to try to in their few minutes on stage in these debates, tried to tell their own story. And they've had very, most of them have had very limited resources to try to tell the story. And if you've been uh, someone like Chris Christie, you've been governor, you've been a prosecutor, you're up there on stage, you have to ask yourself, am I going to talk about prosecuting organized crime, cutting taxes, doing this, or am I going to start getting in a food fight with Donald Trump in these precious moments? It's always, you know, uh, Sophie's choice. You've been up there. And it's very, it's very difficult. You're three people down the state on camera. You're not one-on-one with the guy. Um, it's a very difficult— But on the other hand, isn't it, isn't it it's, one it's, test of strength whether you stand up to the, to the obvious— it's it, it's uh, you know center of very, attention on the stage who's a, spouting listen, a bunch of I think hooey. I think each of these candidates is in a different place physically on stage and a different place in their candidacy at a different moment. Um, I think that uh, the obvious uh, person who was standing next to him, who has been directly insulted by him, was Jeb Bush. I think that. Uh, Jeb has the largest resources. I think Jeb now is stepping up to do this more. I think he should have done it sooner. I think he probably regrets that he didn't Gone do after it. Trump. Gone after Trump sooner. Um, I am baffled why his PAC hasn't done it. Jeb now himself is doing it more. I would expect in this debate you're going to see it more. You're going to have a smaller feel. Um, as, we, as we have this conversation, we're a day before... For Another Repo- Republican, Republican debate, debate in South Carolina, yeah. But I, I, uh, 
I, I think there's two approaches to Donald Trump here. One is that, as, uh, as Marco Rubio said, you know, as a candidate, you could spend all day responding to Donald Trump. You're then letting Donald Trump drive the race. You have to talk about why you want to be president of the United States, which is something that, that, that uh, Barack Obama has done when he was a candidate, did very well. You, know, you, you have to put your vision out there. You have to talk about, uh, ultimately, no one on that stage is running because Donald Trump is running. They'd be running anyway. And, and, and it's sort of a black hole you can get sucked into. Um, and, you know, as, as you know better than anybody, David, presidential choices every day is about deciding what is important and what is critical. What about all these guys with the billions of dollars who are running third-party organizations, you know, uh, 501c4s, super PACs of their own, all these gazillionaires who purport to be disturbed about Trump? Why have they been silent? There's not that many. Uh, again, the... By far, the largest accumulation is in this Right to Rise pack. The Bush I, pack. The, the Jeb Bush pack. I think, you know, they spent like $50, $60 million. I think had they uh, spent $50 or $60 million contrasting Jeb Bush with Donald Trump, it would be a Jeb Bush-Donald Trump race. I think Jeb Bush would be winning that race. I don't understand why they haven't done this. Um, Jeb Bush would be better off if they had. I think that, that, that Donald Trump is a uh, is, is is like a zeppelin floating overhead. This large, slow-moving, hydrogen-filled uh, thing, just waiting uh, for, for, for for people to start uh, uh, poking. What? And I and he, he is incredibly uh, thin-skinned. I, I, I would uh, uh, object it that that he's just reacting to me. He reacts to everything. No, I know. I was joking before. Yeah. Oh, it was okay. a, and it was an attempt at irony. I should have. Yeah, now he reacts to. I said, "I'm going to. I'm going to attempt irony here." If he, if he, if he, you know, if you, if he was president, a twelve-year-old kid in, in Moscow in his basement could start a nuclear war. I mean, you've never had a candidate who was so ripe for negative attacks just because he'll respond to everything. Let me ask you one question based on the conversation we had a little bit earlier, though. As someone who grew up in an environment in which uh, the politics of hate was so yeah. apparent, um, yeah. do, does how does that how do you how think, do you interpret uh, the the, I, the the Trump movement? Well, I don't think I think there's a Trump emotion, uh, and if Trump starts winning. And became a nominee. I think you can call it a movement. You know, uh, I, I, but I how do you feel about it personally? I'm based personally on your deeply, personal I'm personally deeply offended by it, and it's it's one of the reasons that I speak out about it uh, because I feel sort of almost a moral obligation to. Uh, I think that what Donald Trump says and has come to stand for is despicable, and I feel an obligation to stand up to it. Um, I don't think Donald Trump believes in anything. And I think that if he thought that he could get a um, rise out of a crowd, uh, he'd be up there with a hammer and a sickle in a second. Uh, it'd be to the barricades. Um, I felt the same way about Chris McDaniel. That if Trotskyites were in power, you know, he, he, he would be up there, you know, singing the Internationale. Um, 
And but it's still hateful. And uh, I think he, you have to stand up to it. What does it mean for the, what? What has all this done f- uh, to the Republican Party? I think you have to wait and see. I think ultimately uh, there's two ways to look at it. When someone uh, runs and is defeated, you can say, okay, that's uh, the opposite of validation. That's a rejection. So if we all agree that if Donald Trump wins, it means something. So I think it's only fair to say if he loses, it means something. You have to let voters speak. I mean, that seems to me that that's a a process. And there's been a tremendous rush to say that Donald Trump doing well means X, Y, and Z. I think we have to wait and let voters voters decide. Would you support him if he were the nominee? Oh, God, no. Not in a million years. Do you think that 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 is going to be common among uh, some Republicans? Oh, I think if Donald Trump were the nominee, which I don't think he will be, there'd be a third a very strong third-party candidate. Um, let's talk about 2012 for a second. Yeah. Because um, uh, you you talk, and and I believe that uh, when you run for president, you got to speak to the whole country. Yep. Um, and um, and I, I would say we had Mitt Romney on this podcast, and I've had – wonderful interactions with him and i've gotten to know him since the election and i and i like him personally i like him um but you know one of the signature events or one of the benchmarks or one of i don't know what you want to call it but one of the events that really defined the race in 2012 was this tape that leaked the 47 percent tape that really seemed to divide the country in half uh between you know people who seem to be depicted as sort of strivers and people who weren't, who were takers. You know, what, what did Paul Ryan say, makers and takers? Um, what was your reaction when you saw that tape? Well, listen, um, I, I don't think it was, uh, as, as Mitt has said, I don't think it was well said. I think it was an example of a candidate trying to play political consultant. Um, which never turns out well. Um, I was actually at that event, um, though I wasn't in the room. Um, And I think someone asked a question, and he was responding to that question. Uh, I'd never heard him, uh, and I was with him a lot, voice that particular phrasing before. You know, that... that, um, uh, you, you, oh, you must have the same reaction. I mean, when I saw it, I said, holy smokes, this is a huge problem. You know, uh, I, I don't think that it was decisive at all in the election. Uh, there's no data that would show that. You've been through these things, be it uh, uh, religion and guns or... Yeah, yeah, the, no, I've lived through it. Yeah, you know, the Reverend Wright stuff. It. I... I you know, the election was pretty stable, as, as you guys have pointed out since then. Um, did you think, by the way, I've, uh, did you think that you guys were poised to win on election day? There's been a lot about that, you know. Yeah, I don't know where that – listen, I, we were never ahead in our numbers. Um, I, um, 
our numbers were always very good. Now, um, it's, it's difficult to talk about Hurricane Sandy because then people always say, well, do you think you would have won without Hurricane Sandy? And there's no universe that exists without Hurricane Sandy. But in my experience, every time you beat an incumbent, you always had to be uh, on the uh, offense at the end. It's like an NBA game. You had to control the ball at the end. Uh, Hurricane Sandy greatly took away the ability to control that ball at the end. Um, well, now, it also knocked, I mean, if the race, if, if Obama was ahead, I mean, my view of that was it really knocked the election out of the yes out of the headlines and so it's very it was very hard to move to move the number exactly yeah. now that's not to say if you hadn't had hurricane sandy that on that next thursday you know thursday before the election that Mitt Romney wouldn't have gone out and made some terrible mistake we could have lost by more it just it just froze the election we went from having big sweeping rallies around the country to sitting in hotel rooms if you look at the exit polls 16% of the people cite hurricane sandy as the number one reason they voted for barack obama um so uh I thought that we were moving to a way where we had the ability to possibly win at the end, which is all you can ask for, I think, when you're running against an incumbent president of the United States. I was well aware of the fact that no incumbent president who was not in the federal funding system, which did, as it was intended to, level the playing field, had lost in the last 125 years. And that was Hoover. He had a bad year. Um, it's very Not hard. as bad as... The American people. As, as it's very hard to beat an incumbent president of the United States. Um, and the, the money uh, does not help. Um, and I'm a great proponent of the federal funding system. Uh, it's a sort of separate conversation. Yeah. So I, I thought that we had a shot, and then Hurricane Sandy came, and it was just sort of flatlined. Um, so, but I, I was never uh, particularly hopeful. You know, this idea that, you know, Mitt thought he was going to win. You know, I, I, every candidate and every top athlete, all to perform at the level, at that level, they always have to have confidence. If you ask Peyton Manning in the last quarter of the Super Bowl against Seattle, when they were behind, what, I don't know, 20 points, if they were going to win, I think he would have looked at you like you were crazy. Of course they were going to win. I mean, you can't go out and perform at that level mm -hmm. and think you're going to lose. It's an absolute impossibility. Um, and much was made kind of off these reporters on the plane. Admit written a concession speech. I've never known a candidate while they were campaigning who wrote a concession speech. I, mean, it would be, I wouldn't let a candidate write take time from campaigning to write a concession speech. What an absurd waste of time. Um, the campaign had two speeches. Um, so, listen, it's, uh, it, one of the things about Mitt Romney, um, he's very analytical. After every debate, he's one of these guys, he only wanted to talk about what he had done wrong. Not, oh, you know, this was beautiful, baby. It was always... You know, I don't know. This just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. You know, if this had gone two more questions, I don't know what I would have said. Uh, he's very self-critical. It's one of the reasons he's been so successful. Um, he doesn't need a lot of praise. Um, so, I mean, if you look at the film, uh, that yeah, film yeah, Myth, that's a good that, movie. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we, I, uh, we yeah. start getting numbers from Virginia, and he's like, "That's bad for Ohio." Mm -hmm. That's immediately where his mind goes. If we're not winning well in Virginia, 
So uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the outcome necessarily would have been different. But do you think that the things that you had to do to win the primary made it more difficult to win the general election, where he had to run to the right on immigration and some other issues that obviously – I mean, he got 27 percent of the Hispanic vote. You were with – you worked on George W. Bush's campaigns. Yeah. He got 44 percent of that vote in 2004. Well, let's talk about that. So in uh, the summer of 2011, before the primary, the generic Republican was getting 27 percent. Romney got 27 percent. So at face value, the primary didn't hurt the Republican. It just didn't help. So people say, oh, you know, the, the primary hurt. Not really. Um, but it was a squandered opportunity to help would be an accurate way to depict it. Um, all of this stuff about self-deport, uh, that was a phrase that he used once. It never penetrated. Uh, if you actually go back, sort of ironically, and look at what he was saying, it was actually in opposition to forced deportation, that he was expressing a sentiment for self-deportation. It was kind of an you know, unfortunate phrasing. But it was actually, if you read it, it was, we shouldn't be deporting a lot of people. We should let them self-deport. Sort of. But um, as you know, the, Obamacare was always most popular with Hispanics from the very beginning. And... Uh, the majority of the Obama campaign's advertising to Hispanics was about Obamacare. No, it wasn't about immigration. It, it wasn't, wasn't about it was immigration. About education. It was about Obamacare. Obamacare. And there's some reason to believe that Obama was for Obamacare, and Romney was against it. So in that in that era, although the second part is one we could have a debate about, because Romney did, I think, really good work in Massachusetts that Obama drew drew on. I mean, now that the thing is over. I think Romney deserves credit for what he did in Massachusetts. It was a good thing to do. Oh, in mass health care. Yes. Yeah, I don't... This whole notion that uh, has always struck me as absolutely absurd that you could craft a state government plan, and because it worked there, it therefore meant that it would work for the country. Under that same philosophy, if you support uh, the governor of New, of New Hampshire believes that the only national tax plan should be no sales tax and that we, we or and that we should have no income tax. Well, should we should we redo Medicare and let every state have their version of Medicare? I think it's different. It's obviously different because you craft a individual plan to meet a specific need that Massachusetts which is a wildly different economic environment than most states had. So they addressed it. That doesn't mean that— Truth is, he had a very moderate record in Massachusetts on a number of things, on the environment, on health care. And uh, I don't know. It seems to me that he had to to deal with a party that was more conservative than he on a bunch of stuff. And uh, that was a challenge. Listen, you know, Romney, I think what's interesting, if you go back and look at it, you know, what do we know about this Republican Party? It's increasingly Southern, even, as you pointed out, you know, evangelical, ev- evangelical uh, and populist. What do we know about Mitt Romney? Um, and he won a primary. Um, and, you know, won 45 primaries and caucuses. Um, 
I think it's been a while since someone without a it's obvious uh, geographic or ideological base did as well as he did. Uh, maybe Bill Clinton? I have to think about it. Um, but can the Republican Party win nationally um, as a uh, uh, as a white Southern evangelical party if that's the sort of core and that's where the candidates have to pitch their appeal? Well, no. I mean, just as a matter of numbers, obviously not. You have to do better. You know, you have to win Ohio. You, you, you know, you're going to have to win New Hampshire. You're going to have to win uh, suburbs of Virginia, which have become very different. So Trump and Cruz, uh, Trump and Cruz seem to be Cruz looks like he's going to win Iowa. Um, can yeah. he can can he put that coalition together? There are uh, the Trump folks, no. uh, the Cruz folks are, the, are among those who are saying if we just get more uh, white folks to vote, we can white conservatives to vote, we can win. Yeah, they're wrong. Uh, you know, when when Cruz and Mitt Romney were both on the ballot in Texas, Mitt Romney got more votes. Um, even though Mitt Romney didn't spend a dime uh, in in Texas, um, who can? Who could? Who do you think there's a candidate running now? Yeah, I think. Uh, I, I think of those candidates. I think that uh, I think Chris Christie could win. I think uh, Jeb Bush could win. I think that Rubio could win, and I think Kasich could win. And and I think they could even win easily, particularly against Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton is a very very damaged candidate. I just find it extraordinary that the party would nominate Hillary Clinton. You know, you've never had an incumbent president followed, in modern times, followed by a member of their own party of an older generation. Now, we don't pass the flag backwards. Now, it could happen. I mean, things happen that haven't happened. Um, But I tend to think it hasn't happened. Because it depends on whether people feel like the party itself is passing the flag backwards. Right. That's right. I agree. Uh, so that, that's the danger for the Republican uh, uh, Party. What, if, if, the party doesn't nom- if the party nominates a Trump or a Cruz and— um, We'll lose, we'll, overwhelmingly. But what does it mean in terms of the future of the Republican Party? Oh, I think it'll be like a Goldwater scenario where, you know, uh, it'll be— um, Could it split in two, or do you think? No, it I don't. I don't. I don't buy those things, you know. Mm-hmm. But I'm not a, enough of a political scientist to be able to, you know, argue why it should or wouldn't. I just tend to think that it won't because there won't be enough energy for it to happen. I think you know, uh, it'll just be an ass kicking, and then they'll regroup. But if they'll a third the party Senate, grows, that could lose. be. The, if a third party come uh, happens, that could. I don't think that would. I don't think if it was Cruz, there'd be a third party. Mm-hmm. I think you just get your ass kicked. You lose the Senate. You know, there's only one state that, that Romney lost where we won a tight Senate race, and that was Nevada. And he only, hell, he only won by 0.03. But, um, you know, if you look at these Senate races... Uh, You've got a bunch of Republicans up Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, Ohio, Florida. You, you, you have an open seat. You've got to have a presidential candidate who's doing well. Or you're going to lose them all. So um, just ask yourself, I mean, how, uh, if Hillary Clinton is winning Ohio at 53 points, I mean, I, 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 
man, um, it, it's already tough in Pennsylvania, and Florida's never an easy day. I did the last uh, uh, Republican president, uh, Republican Senate race in a presidential year, Mel Martinez, and with George Bush winning, it was still a long slog um, to get Mel up there. Um, it's you know, I, I did Tom Ridge in Pennsylvania. It's hard. Um, so, you know, you put Ted Cruz up there and, you know, it's just going to be. Uh, so let, let me just finish where we started in a way and ask you, um, uh, given your experiences as a young man, what's your hope for the Republican Party in the future? Well, look, um I uh, I think the last uh, seven years uh, have not been good years. I think that they have been, um, if you just look at the numbers, you know, they have been uh, years of, for the first time we have a middle class that is smaller than uh, the wealthy and the poor and uh, we have fewer people working and making less money and the country uh, is less hopeful and we can argue why and we can argue well we can also i mean look we can argue it was inevitable i I, I think we've got a long-term problem we do and and it's been it's been true for it's been brewing for decades which is the changes in the economy and what that's meant for the middle class, what it's meant for upward mobility. That transcends any parties. I just have to say a word because I need to live with myself. I can't let you say that and not recognize the fact that all long term uh, that Obama then that Obama took office the quarter before he took office, the economy was declining by 8.9%. We were losing in the month he took office 800,000 jobs. We've had 70 straight months of job creation now. Uh, he's going to end up creating 10 times as many jobs as the last administration did. So, yes, I think we've got a big problem with wages, with mobility, with polarization in the economy. And it's one that demands both parties to pitch in and discuss. Me, but um, here, here's, here's, know, here's, 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 what I, here's what I worry about the most. Republicans have never been very good at speaking for those left behind. And what... I see is that there has been a muting of voices for those who normally speak for those left behind and a desire not to uh, speak up for Republicans and not to criticize uh, President Obama these last seven years. And that well, we, who's not been criticizing President Obama? That Certainly not Republicans. No, that, the vo- that those who normally would speak up for those who have been left behind, mm-hmm. who are the most vulnerable. You mean within the Republican Party? No, within our nation. Oh. I mean, just our national voices, you know, be it from the New York Times to just uh, those that are more center left. Their voices have tended to have been muted these last seven years and have not spoken up about the poverty enough, have not spoken up about those that are being left behind and dropping out of the middle class because of a fear that they're uh, a concern that it would be uh, supporting Republicans and hurting President Obama. And we have, I think, been poor because of a lack of those voices. And Republicans aren't very good at it. And what I worry about 
it's uh, a sense uh, of accepting what is happening now as positive. Uh, this idea that, uh, to use a phrase, new normal. And we don't have a John Steinbeck now. We have a John Stewart, you know, this is multimillionaire, uh, clever uh, social critic from New Jersey. But he's not someone who speaks to this economic pain. And we have these two pockets of vast, vast wealth in America, D.C. and Manhattan, where so much of the national conversation is driven, that we've lost this, connect, this, this connection. You know, we don't have a studs turkle anymore. We don't have these voices. And, and that, to me, is a, a, something that has been lost. Part of it is that we don't have as many regional newspapers that we used to have. And so what I would hope for the Republican Party, to get back to this, is that it can begin to, to somehow speak for those uh, that have been uh, still out there uh, that, and connect with them in a way. This is the future of politics in America, those uh, who are doing okay but not great but still want to do better. And whoever can reach those people the, is, is the party that's going to, I think, dominate. And we've been much better. And reach to, them not with divisive messages. Exactly. Not with hate. Because ultimately hate is exhausting and burns itself out. And uh, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's a downward spiral. And uh, it, we've been better at that on the local level. It's we've been better than that on the state level, for a lot of reasons, um, and we just have to find the right people and be able to do it better uh, on a national level, or uh, we'll, we'll keep losing elections. Stuart Stevens, author of The Last Season, great book. Everyone should pick it up about his uh, formative years in Mississippi his relationship with his dad, uh, and uh, author of many other books, author of many campaigns, uh, and uh, a guy who uh, once uh, skied 100 miles to the North Pole, I'm told. Uh, so, uh, And you don't find many who fit that same description. Uh, so uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a fellow at the Institute of Politics. It's a real, real pleasure. Man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.